Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. In this segment, we are speaking to filmmaker Randy Benson. Hello, Mr. Benson. Hey, Len. Thank you so much for having me on today. I think a lot of people have heard of you and know your work, your good work in the JF Research community. But today we're going to be talking about John Judge, an anniversary of a really important event. It just, it's just, I was saying, just great that we're talking about John Judge years later. So I hope maybe people will join you. Tell everyone what is happening coming up in June. Well, on June 10th, I will be holding the 24th annual JFK American University Address Commemoration at the American University Peace Speech Memorial at 12 noon on June 10th in Washington, D.C. And this is a commemoration that John Judge and Bill Kelly and T. Carter started in 1999. John held it every year until his death in April 2014, and I took it over in 2014 and have been doing it ever since, just kind of holding the, uh, holding the torch, you know, bringing it forward. It's amazing. You don't really know the, the power of uh, and some of the things that John did and other researchers do and you see like a memorial 24th wow Wow. yeah so year after year keeping the flame of of what John Kennedy stood for that that famous speech tell me about your thoughts why is it important to you well personally I first met John Judge at this event in 2002 on June 10th 2002 when I was in deep research on my film, The Searchers. And he was the first researcher I met. Um, This was the first event I went to. He was just so open and giving and welcoming. That was the first day of our friendship. And it, you know, I was, uh, I joined him every year after that. So I've been at American University on June 10th every year since 2002, since I first met John. And, you know, a lot, of, a lot of times it would just be me and John out there with no one else. Every now and then someone would come. But it was so inspiring to me to see someone continue and no matter what, 
continue the legacy of of uh, bringing the importance of the JFK peace speech, keeping it alive, even if it was just him or a few people alone at that memorial. And, you know, he some years he he did the same thing on the grassy knoll with Penn Jones. And uh, a lot of years back then, it was just Penn and John standing on the knoll on the anniversary date. So it's it's a it's a kind of weird link from me to John to the first generation researchers, Penn Jones and everyone else who's kept this uh, fire burning all these years. Now, you mentioned your, your documentary, The Searchers. Give people just an overview of that in case someone hasn't heard of that. Yeah, well, the film is a portrait of the JFK research community. I started it. The first frames I shot were in 2002 at that Peace Speech Memorial that I spoke about a bit ago. Um, I started researching it deeply in, uh, late, in the late 90s. After meeting John, after meeting other researchers, I realized quickly that if I was going to make an honest documentary about the research community, a community that had been so maligned in the mainstream media for generations, that I had to stop filming and I had to do my own research and, and really dig deeper. I thought this, the film was going to take a, a couple, maybe three years to get made. But in the end, it took me 14 years to get made to be an honest representation of the community and everything they've faced over the years, everything that they've revealed over the years. And so my goal was to make it an, as honest a portrait of a subculture that I, that I possibly could. And I'm personally very pleased about how it turned out. One of the problems with the film and it's inherent in all documentary work, is that I could only interview so many people. I have 13 interviewees in the film, and that's almost too many for, a, for an hour and a half documentary. So there were so many researchers that I couldn't interview. So I'm hoping to, in the next few months, start another project, the, a sequel to The Searchers, where I can really interview a lot more researchers that... Uh, that I wasn't able to include in the first. You mean first you've got another spare 14 years? This will not be 14 years, brother. This will. <laughs> okay. Um, Famous last um, words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. We're working on stuff here in Vancouver and, uh, oh yeah, it's years. And, and I can't even see the horizon on one of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for instance, I'm working on something for John Armstrong and it's, uh, when I recorded it, it was six hours. And, you know, and I hope to trim it down to four hours and then the video and you know, I'm, I don't know, maybe five minutes into it. Right. John calls right. me. How are you doing? You done? He says, oh, my God. Now, some of these things take time. You go through if you're putting in images over top of text and that, you know, it just takes hours. And then, and then when you assemble something together, you stand back and you go, no, this would look better here. I mean, you have all your interviews. Who is first? You know, who's last? Now, do you, mm -hmm. do, you, do you shape the thing that, that it kind of builds? You can see how this guy met him, and they met him, and they get together, and then you go to a conference, and all these people are together. Yeah, so filmmaking. It's very difficult. Yeah. If you just rush something together, if somebody said put it together, it's not. But as soon as you decided to treat it a little artistically, then, then it does take time. And, and the good yeah. thing with yours is 
you get an insight where you meet someone and then you see what they're like kind of like, you know, off the trail. I mean, one of my favorite things is seeing John Judge sitting in a bar reading a newspaper, you know, in the back. You go, wow, you know, here he is in front of a podium speaking. And then, you know, he's in the back room somewhere having lunch and that. And then that the different people that you brought into, you get a sense of who they were as well as their interest in this crime. So, mm-hmm. you know, everyone was all the researchers are just normal people who have jobs. And this is an avocation. As everyone knows in the research community, you don't make a living being <laughs> political assassination researcher. So uh, everyone had jobs to hold down. And that's, you know, one of the reasons it took me so long is because I had jobs and then I got married and had kids and bought a house and life and all of that too. So, and, you know, in many ways, my experience paralleled almost every researcher I met. You know, we have lives to live in the meantime. So I, I felt I truly understood what, um, a researcher had to go through just to do their avocation. Yeah, I have a funny anecdote. I was talking to Oliver Stone about his latest 30 years after the fact, right? Um, mm-hmm. Destiny Betrayed. I asked him, I said, well, well, why did you do this, right? And then he kind of quickly turned it on me and said, well, why do you do Black Op Radio? And I thought for a second ago, I said, you know, I think I do it kind of as a community service just to kind of level the field and he went right away he goes exactly right he goes that's you know he doesn't he's not sure it's going to be a money maker or anything and like you mentioned people who write books on the assassination they oh i don't know if this is going to be any anything profitable at all if we can break even wow you know you get a trophy for that oh yeah oh yeah yeah so imagine Um, the hours that john uh spent just and you know he he walked the walk too man he uh he was also involved in, you know, the the community in Washington D.C. So he would he would go to job fairs, set up next to these big plasma displays um, of the U.S. Army and the U.S. Navy, trying to recruit people. And he would set up his little card table. I have some footage of this. It's amazing. And with pamphlets, and he would just be giving the students an option to get an education and live rich, fulfilled lives without joining the military. So, you know, he would have all these grant applications for schools, and he just wanted to give the youth of uh, D.C. another perspective on how they can live their life. Not all of them have to go to into the military. And, you know, he did all of his work after the Vietnam War, helping returning vets get their deserved compensation, helping them negotiate the Veterans Administration hospitals. You know, and he was a pacifist, but the moment they got home, he was their greatest ally. He, you know, did that throughout the 70s and 80s, all the while working on the JFK assassination, the MLK assassination, Malcolm X, RFK, Fred Hampton, Medgar Evers. You know, he was just, he was a force for good in our in our country he walked the walk he you know a lot of people talk big but the dude lived it every single day and part of that was you know his dedication to preserving history and that's one of the great things about the uh his um peace speech commemoration every year 
and just doing it alone sometimes. Yeah. Is there something in the peace speech that rings true? That something that keeps that alive that you want to keep alive? Oh, absolutely. It's uh, there are a number of things. It's a beautifully crafted speech, and not many people know that the speech was it was kept very secret within the White House and within very close confidants, uh, Ted Sorensen, Arthur Schlesinger, even though it had dramatic policy changes contained therein. He didn't show it to the State Department or the Defense Department until just two days before the speech when it was already locked. So no changes could be could be made. And he did that intentionally so that he he and his team wouldn't face any any um, backlash from the state or defense departments. Like I said, it's beautifully written. May I read just a couple quick excerpts? Yeah, for sure. A hundred percent. Yeah. Okay, thanks. He says, quote, first, let us examine our own attitude towards peace itself. Too many of us think it's impossible. Too many think it's unreal. But that's a dangerous, defeatist belief. Our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by man. A man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond our reach. Then he goes on to say, so let us not be blind to our differences. But let us also direct attention to our common interests and the means by which those differences can be resolved. And if we cannot end now our differences, at least we can help make the world safe for diversity. For in the final analysis, our most basic common link is is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's future. And we are all mortal. Confident and afraid and unafraid, we must labor on, not towards a strategy of annihilation, but towards a strategy of peace. And the speech was immediately um, known around the world as JFK's peace speech. And it was in every major newspaper around the world, but it got very little time in the mainstream media in the United States. Very little time. That was on June 10th. And then after the speech is where things really ramped up because he aggressively initiated a number of unilateral policy changes in line with what he expressed in the speech. So on June 10th, he signed and had delivered to the Joint Chiefs National Security Action Memos 55, 56, and 57, which ordered the Joint Chiefs would be wholly responsible for all covert and paramilitary actions in wartime, which effectively removed all the power from the CIA and placed it within the Pentagon, who answered directly to the president. Didn't, did you mean in peacetime? In peacetime, yes. Oh, yes. I'm, I'm sorry. Yes. And wartime, actually. And this has been accepted as JFK's first step in splintering the CIA into the winds, as he said he would after the Bay of Pigs in 61. On August 5th, less than two months after the speech, representatives of the U.S., the Soviet Union, and Great Britain signed the Limited Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, which prohibited the testing of nuclear weapons in outer space, underwater, or in the atmosphere. Then, on September 20th, President Kennedy gave a speech at the U.N. that proposed moving away from the moon race to a cooperative venture with the Soviet Union in space. 
Then about the same time, in mid-September, JFK ordered the evaluation of massive wheat sales to the Soviet Union, and talks began between our two countries in late September and lasted until November 5th. And the, the agreement had begun its process of inter- and intra-governmental review. Those were very controversial wheat sales um, to the Soviet Union that Kennedy wanted very much. And then finally, on October 11th, Kennedy signed National Security Action Memo 263, which so many of, you know, everyone listening knows about, but it's a remarkable document that states, and it was delivered to the Joint Chiefs, and it states, at a meeting on October 5th, 63, just a few days before this memo was drafted, the president considered the recommendations contained in the report of Secretary McNamara and General Taylor on their mission to South Vietnam. The president approved the implementation of plans to withdraw 1,000 U.S. military personnel by the end of 1963. We recommend that program be established to train Vietnamese so that essential functions now performed by the U.S. military personnel can be carried out by Vietnamese by the end of 65. It should be possible to withdraw the bulk of U.S. personnel by that time. So that was basically the end that signified the end of our involvement in Vietnam in NSAM 263. That was a little over a month before he was assassinated. So Kennedy was killed on the 22nd of 63 in Dallas. And on November 26th, just four days after the assassination, LBJ signed National Security Action Memo 273, which reversed Kennedy's Vietnam withdrawal policy, approved an expansion of the war in personnel, and approved covert military and non-military action into Cambodia and Laos, which put the CIA back to its pre-263 position. In the following months, the wheat sales were scrapped, nuclear testing was restarted, the space race continued, and the expansion of the military state accelerated as well as the acceleration of the war in Vietnam. So that speech, the peace speech, was the beginning of the end of... Everyone considers that was the nail in his coffin, basically. They thought he could be changed, but after the peace speech, he implemented all of those programs that were stated within the speech, and and they couldn't let it stand. So Bob Groden and I have talked about this, and you know he agrees that this was the final nail in, in his coffin. There was no going back for the powers after that. Because it was such a opposition to the industrialized military complex, and like you said, even like in the Soviet Union and around the world, people went, wait a minute, maybe we can start negotiating in good faith. Maybe we can calm things down because he's putting out the first olive branch. And I think one of the quotes was, we can work with him, you know, like that yeah. this will make a better planet. Never mind just America, United States, all around the world, things will get better. And uh, the psychopaths in power, that was uh, not what they wanted to hear. You're correct. That's, that's exactly right. You know, it's it's strange. My um, 
my children are 14 and 12, and they'll be coming with me this year um, to the commemoration. And as we talked to the future generations about about this, and you know, Jim Douglas summed it up perfectly in his book. JFK but, and the Unspeakable. Yeah, JFK and the Unspeakable, why he died and why it matters. And that's what is very important to me, what we can learn about why he died and why it matters and what we can take from this moving forward. So I find the story of JFK and especially of the peace speech so hopeful that one man truly can make a difference. They may be snuffed out, but because of him and because of the assassination, I've met hundreds and hundreds of people, just normal people from around the world who are working towards what JFK called a strategy of peace. And that gives me hope. You know, your listeners give me hope. And I'm passing that to my kids who are very interested in history and hopefully the listeners out there are doing the same with their kids and their grandkids and everybody else. I think the researchers are keeping alive what JFK taught us about how to live a life of peace and strength and confidence and one in a life without fear because that's how he lived. And he gave us that gift so that we can all continue working together towards, uh, you know, towards that strategy of peace, true peace. After the fact, thanks to John Judge for year after year carrying that torch. And now you are continuing that as well. So uh, you have my admiration. Thank you for that. I think a lot of listeners, if they can't go, thank you. But uh, again, tell me the address. Tell, just tell people whereabouts, how easy it, it might be easier to get to than they think. It, it is. Again, it's at American University in Washington, D.C., 4400 Massachusetts Avenue Northwest. If you go to Google Maps or just to Apple Maps, you zoom in on American University. The Peace Speech Memorial has a, a little GPS icon. So if you click on that, you can go directly to it. And we're gathering at noon on the 10th. We'll start after people get there and we get settled. And and then hopefully we can all get together and go to lunch and talk about things afterwards. Right. Uh, I don't think, I don't know about last year and and COVID and that, but I do recall that I had you on one time publicizing this and you emailed me back to say, hey, a few people heard the show and they came out. So yep. I, I only hope that uh, that we're in time so that um, people can maybe join you there. You know, everyone's welcome, of course. And we had two people join us last year, which was great. David Neal and from the Outer Banks of North Carolina and I believe his brother or a good friend. But hopefully more people will come and we can uh, just have more of a gathering over the years. But you know, as long as I can, I'm going to continue doing that. I'm I'm in Durham, North Carolina, so it's three and a half, four hours drive for me. So it's not that big a deal. But well, that but, right yeah. there is some dedication. Well, I'm in Vancouver, Canada, but I tell you what, uh, I'll wear my Searchers T-shirt, which I wear every now and then, <laughs> and I'll I'll wear that for you. It'll be nine in the morning for me at twelve noon there. Excellent, excellent. Thanks, and I will be filming it, and I'll send you a link. 
to the video when it's up on YouTube. Yeah, or a still picture, and I'll just uh, I'll I'll put that up at Black Op Radio on the Facebook page or whatever. Okay, well, great. It, it's so good to hear from you, and and also to hear that you're still working on something new. There's another part two in your film. Yeah, because after I said documentary, I'm not sure if it's exactly documentary. It is a film, but I guess it is. There's a kind of a narrative to it that this is a story of people. I guess film or documentary, they both are 50-50 in there, right? Yeah, yeah. I consider it more of almost like an ethnographic study. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm excited about the next part and next chapter in and moving forward. Okay, well, thank you so much for reminding me that this is going to happen June 10th and that you'll be there. And I urge anyone nearby, come on, if you're closer than three hours, that's how it's taken Randy, uh, get there. Well, I, I kind of set out what I wanted to do is do this. Is there anything else you would like to bring up or discuss that, that we didn't get to? I give you that chance now. Oh, um, no, not necessarily. I just want to thank everybody out there for their hard work, their dedication, and their belief in what we're all doing together. So thank you so much, Lynn, for having me on, and um, I'll definitely be in touch. Okay. Well, you're very welcome, and thank you for your good work. All right? Good. We'll, I'll okay. talk to you again, and I hope it's a success. That sounds great. Thanks a lot. Okay. Good night. You're listening to Black Op Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. This is your host, Lena Osanek, and today we are talking to Benjamin Cole. He has a new article, The Walker Bullet CE 573. Is it real? And it's at Kennedy's and King, and we'll make the proper links. And that, But hello, Ben. Hello, Len. Great to hear you again, and delighted to be on everyone's favorite radio show, Black Op Radio. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm in Vancouver, Canada. You're in the Far East. It's uh, it's uh, You're a day ahead of everyone. It's morning for you, and it's uh, still evening for me. Yeah, Southeast Asia, the new center of the world. That's where I am. Okay. Well, what got you into writing on this topic of the, uh, of the assassination and then specifically the Walker Bullet? Well, first, let me tip the hat to Tom Graham. He is the co-author and very serious... Uh, uh, JFK assassination researcher really goes through the memos, you know, the the Farrell Foundation and all of that. I've been curious about the Walker Bullet for a couple of years. You may remember, I think I was on your show and I did a, a story for Kennedys and King on the whole Walker shooting episode a couple of years back. And in that, we were exposed to the Walker Bullet and it was first identified as steel jacketed and then later copper jacketed. And at the time, I thought, well, you know, humans are humans. They make mistakes. So they thought it was a steel-jacketed bullet, not a copper-jacketed bullet. You know, it could happen, right? But as I researched the topic more, more and more, I became convinced this was not a mistake that the Walker bullet the Warren Commission has, which is obviously copper-jacketed, is not the bullet that was found that night, April 10, 1963, in the Walker home. Well... Why don't you detail, and we'll go over your article for those who haven't read it, and of course, we'll urge everyone to read it. But Okay, I'll just start going through the article. And sure. as, most, as most Kennedy researchers know, the Walker bullet, or CE-573, was purportedly extracted from the home of General Edwin Walker on April 10, 1963. 
It was con contemporaneously described in official Dallas Police Department reports as steel jacketed. Someone had taken a pot shot at Walker that night through a window on the rear side of his house in front of which the general was seated, or so Walker had related to the Dallas Police Department that night. Not one, but two Dallas Police Department detectives, Ira Van Cleve and Don E. McElroy, put their signatures on a general office offense report. They also authored and signed a supplementary offense report to the effect that they had observed a bullet of unknown caliber, steel jacket, had been shot through the window at Walker's home as General sat at his desk. Two Dallas uh, Police Department patrolmen, Norvell and Tucker, authored the general offense report also, which also identified the Walker bullet as a steel jacketed bullet. All four Dallas officers had held the Walker bullet that night in their hands and inscribed initials into it, typical putting the typical inscribing evidence. They inscribed their initials with an all or a stylus into the bullet itself, according to official reports. Now, remember, General Edwin Walker was a national political figure at that time. Uh, so this, is, this was not you know, some back alley shooting at a pool hall or something. This was an important attempted assassination of a national political figure. So the Walker bullet, after missing General Walker, had passed through an interior wall, became badly deformed, but reportedly subsequently came to rest in between bundled papers stacked up against the wall on the opposite side of the wall, passed through the wall and ended up neatly between bundled papers. That's according to the reports at the time. Months later, our favorite organization, the Warren Commission, would conclude it was Lee Harvey Oswald who shot, shot at and attempted to murder Walker that night. The Warren Commission said that in part after the FBI said the Walker bullet, or CE-573, was in fact the same type of Western brand ammo that Oswald used in his Manlicher Carcino rifle. Of course, the problem is the Walker bullet in possession of the Warren Commission is copper jacketed and obviously so. You cannot look like more of a copper jacketed bullet than CE-573. Why? Well, it's it was torn asunder as it passed through the wall or whatever the FBI did to CE-573. So you can see the copper jacket is ripped open and that reveals it is not a relatively uncoppered, un common steel jacketed bullet with copper gilding, also sometimes called copper wash. It, it wouldn't surprise me if the CE-573 is used in police cadet training courses somewhere as a classic example of a copper jacketed bullet, not the steel jacketed bullet that was found at the General Walker's home that night. Uh, anybody carving initials into a copper gilded steel jacketed bullet would notice the steel color and hardness and Emerging from under the microscopically thin copper gilding, it is inexplicable that even one big city police detective would identify CE-573 as steel jacketed. But we have four different police officers, two detectives and two patrolmen, authored and signed one-page reports that night saying the Walker bullet was steel jacketed. 
and thus is not CE 573, the Warren Commission, uh, what the Warren Commission said was uh, fired into the Walker home. So as I said, I thought, well, maybe that was just a, a huge mistake, inexplicable mistake, unbelievable mistake, but maybe it was a mistake made by four different Dallas police officers that night. But then I began to research the industry. And the vast majority of bullets in the late 1960s, and even today, are copper jacketed in the United States and have been for more than a century. Uh, if you research the industry, you'll find out bullets with metal jackets largely replaced plain lead bullets at the same time that smokeless propellants replaced black powder in the majority of rifle ammunition. And the, the jacketed bullet was invented, the copper jacketed bullet was invented because uh, the power of these new uh, cartridges, uh, the explosive power would cause a lead bullet to mushroom as it passed down through the barrel of the rifle, become less accurate. So copper jacketed, technically a copper alloy jacketed or copper zinc, also called brass bullets, largely replaced unjacketed bullets in the first half of the 1900s. They became standard by the 1960s. Steel jacketed bullets, in sharp contrast, are generally specialty items designed for extraordinary penetrating power, often in military applications. I'll get back to this, but there were some steel jacketed bullets manufactured during World War II by the U.S. Army only because there were copper wartime shortages. So under duress of copper wartime shortages, the U.S. Army fleetingly went to some steel jacketed bullets, which later ended up on civilian markets. In any event, there's no, uh, the only reason for, for four policemen and detectives at a scene of an attempted murder to identify a slug found at the murder scene as steel jacketed would be because that's unusual. You're a detective. This, the would-be murderer on April 10, 1963 would have been armed with an unusual ammo, very much worth noting. So that's why all four of these Dallas police officers identified the bullet as steel jacketed. It's, it's uncommon, it's unusual, it's something to note. Okay, so let's go through this. Uh, then, uh, back in April 1963, Detective Van Cleve, he was one of the guys that held the bullet and inscribed it, he would tell the New York Times and Associated Press and Texas newspapers that he had found a 30-06 rifle bullet or slug in the home of Walker that night. 30-06 slug, steel jacketed. Uh, this, of course, created a tremendous problem for the Warren Commission because when the FBI got a hold of the Walker bullet on December 3 uh, or December 4, Robert Frazier, he is an FBI lab guy, identified the bullet as copper jacketed lead bullet in a handwritten report December 4. So something's gone wrong here. The Dallas police find a steel jacketed bullet in Walker's home, and when they send it to Washington, it becomes a copper jacketed bullet. I mean, you, you can't make this stuff up. The Warren Commission, even the Warren Commission, began to have problems with this uh, transmogrification of steel into copper. Kind of an alchemy going on here. So, <laughs> uh, so Melvin Eisenberg 
the Warren Commission, of course, as your readers know, or listeners know, held hearings, and Melvin Eisenberg of the Warren Commission asked Robert Frazier, the FBI lab guy, of CE-573, was it a jacketed bullet? Frazier said, yes, it's a copper alloy jacketed bullet having a lead core. Eisenberg asks Frazier, can you think of any reason why someone might have called this a steel jacketed bullet? Frazier, no, sir, except that some individuals, some individuals commonly refer to rifle bullets as steel jacketed bullets when they are actually, in fact, just have a copper alloy jacket. And that was that. Warren Commission was done with the topic. But, you know, Frazier said some individuals commonly refer to rifle bullets as steel jacketed. Questioning was closed off. Of course, some individuals is an unlimited category that includes anyone on the planet, park winos, or hunters housewives. I mean, anybody could say, oh, well, rifle bullets are steel jacketed. But surely, Fraser was whistling in the dark. I, I have found no evidence that anyone in the industry, ammo industry, police, federal agencies, ever referred to steel-jacketed bullets as copper-jacketed bullets. Particularly, police department detectives gathering evidence at the scene of an attempted murder of a very high-profile political figure. There are just no way to say that, oh, police detectives call steel-jacketed and copper-jacketed bullets the same, especially when it's so obviously a copper-jacketed bullet in the case of the Warren Commission's CE-573. Uh, you can review ammo ads from the 1960s. You can review industry literature. There is just not the slightest hint that rifle, barrel, rifle bullets were ever commonly described as steel-jacketed, nor would that make sense since rifle belt bullets became commonly copper jacketed and remained so in the early, in the 1960s. Uh, so you might say, well, uh, how did uh, the Warren Commission check the chain of evidence on this? I mean, how do they know this is the right bullet? I mean, it was obviously the wrong bullet, but how do they know it was the right bullet in their minds? So did they check? with the two detectives and show them the bullet. McElroy, 13-year veteran of the Dallas Police Department, Van Cleve, six-year veteran of the Dallas Police Department. No, they didn't check with them. Did they check with the Dallas Police Department crime lab? No, they didn't check with them. They checked with one of the patrolmen, Norville. On June 10, they showed, 1964, they showed Norville the bullet. or in June, but they wrote a report on June 10, the FBI wrote a report, Patrolman Norville handled a bullet, which Norville stated he had found among some papers and literature in the room next to the room where General Walker had been sitting at the time of the shooting. And he handed, Norville said he handed the bullet to the DP Dallas Police Department crime scene search section officer named Brown. In the very same report, the FBI also reports Dallas Police Department Detective McElroy, a police officer for 13 years, advised, uh, said that he had picked up the bullet, the, the slug in the Walker home, and he later gave it to Brown of the crime scene search dissection. So you can't make this stuff up. 
the FBI says McElroy says he found the bullet, and then Norville says said he found the bullet April 10. That's in their report. I'm not, you know, your readers can check all this. I mean, your listeners can check this when they go into. I mean, it sounds like I'm making this up as they go along, but that's what the report said. Norville found the bullet, and McElroy found the bullet on April 10. Uh, but it was only to Norville, the patrolman, that the FBI, 14 months after the Walker shooting, showed a slug. Norville said he recognized the CE-573 bullet, despite it being copper-jacketed, from the BN or the N he had scratched into the bullet. Uh, there's more to this story, but there was, it, it just doesn't hold water because no one can find the end that Norville put on the bullet, but there's, there's other uh, signatures which are missing from the bullet, or marks. So, you might ask, well, did, did the police Dallas Police Department ever take a photo of the Walker bullet they found on April 10th? No. There are no photos in the Dallas Police Department records of the true Walker bullet. If they ever photographed the Walker bullet, those Photographs have disappeared. What about the lab reports from April 10 or shortly thereafter? There are no lab reports surviving paper records from the from the Dallas Police Department lab, which is actually in Parkland Hospital, regarding the Walker bullet. The lab never described the bullet as steel jacketed or copper jacketed. So we're running out of ways to verify what kind of bullet this is. So you might ask, why did the Warren Commission never even ask the two detectives on the scene, particularly Van Cleve, about those, did they have the right bullet? You know, was CE-573 the true Walker bullet? Well, it turns out Jaylene Rankin, who was a general counsel of the Walker Commission, had put out a memo on May 4, and he specifically identified among a few bits of evidence that it was not necessary to trace the chain of command possession forward past the first person who can identify the item by inspection. The memo specifically mentions the Walker bullet. So Rankin gave permission to the FBI to only show the Walker bullet to the patrolman Norville, even though there was a conflict in the written official record regarding if Norville actually found and handled the bullet or if it was McElroy. One obvious interpretation is that Rankin wanted to sidestep showing the bullet and getting testimony from the Dallas Police Department's, uh, from Dallas Police Department detectives, McElroy and Van Cleve, since they would likely say, we found a steel jacketed bullet, not a copper jacketed bullet. So you got any questions so far, Len? Am I, am I confusing everybody? No, it's okay. Just keep going. Cause I, you know, I, I've read the article and I, now I know where it's going, but uh, yeah, just keep going. Okay, so there was an assistant director named W.C. Sullivan at the FBI. And on December 4, after the FBI had received the Walker bullet and described it as copper jacketed, assistant director W.C. Sullivan called it, this is from an FBI memo, assistant director W. as soon as they get the, 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 the copper bullet, which should be steel jacketed bullet, into the FBI lab, FBI Assistant Director W.C. Sullivan called at 3.10 a.m. 3.10 a.m. in the morning. 
and instructed that he receive a return phone call and be filled in on the details regarding the alleged bullet shot into the home of General Edwin Walker. So, you know, Sullivan here at 3.10 in the morning is having some sort of meltdown in his office because they have a copper jacketed bullet and the Dallas Police Department says they, they, they found a steel jacketed bullet in the Walker home. Sullivan then instructed that agents review Dallas newspaper morgues first thing Wednesday morning, December 4, and details be obtained and furnished to him by teletype. Remember, they didn't have email in those days. Teletype was the, you know, the instant messaging system of the era. He wanted a teletype. He didn't want to wait for the mail. He wanted a teletype. He wanted something in writing now explaining why they have a copper jacketed bullet and the Dallas Police Department had a steel jacketed bullet found at the Walker home. Uh, but not only Sullivan did think the true Doc Walker bullet was steel jacketed. In a very unusual thing, one of the um, commenters of the education forum on the Kennedy assassination debates, he found an article from November 29, 1963. This is great research. On, the, on November 29, 1963, Dallas Police Chief Jesse Curry told the Associated Press that, in his opinion, the bullets that struck President Kennedy were still jacketed. But he said this was not confirmed to him by the FBI. Why would Curry, out of the blue, bef now the bullets had been gathered by the FBI. Nobody in Dallas saw the bullets that had been gathered by the FBI out of the presidential limo, or as we all know, the magic bullet found in the Parkland Hospital. But here's Jesse Curry saying he thinks Kennedy was shot with a steel jacketed bullet. Why on earth would that would would Jet Chief Curry one week after the murder opine to a national news media organization that the bullets that struck JFK, which he had never seen or examined and which are still secret under FBI cover, were relatively rare steel jacketed bullets rather than the industry norm, the standard and very common copper jacketed bullets. There is nothing in the JFK itself. There's nothing in that horrible murder and the, and the Zapruder film. There's nothing to suggest steel jacketed bullets were used. So why, obviously, Chief Curry had connected Oswald to the Walker shooting. Obviously, Chief Curry knew a steel jacketed bullet had been reported as found at the Walker shooting. Obviously, and even on November 23, there's a there's a newsreel. You can see it on YouTube. Look at the links. Chief Curry was asked by an unidentified news reporter. This is one day after the Kennedy shooting. Chief Curry was asked by an unidentified news reporter whether Lee Harvey Oswald was the failed assassin of General Walker. So everybody in Dallas is already talking about Oswald must have shot at Walker also using a steel jacketed bullet. Curry then naturally deduces Oswald must have shot at Kennedy with a steel jacketed bullet also.
And we know from FBI memos that the Dallas Police Department, even before December 4, even before they were asked, they, they wanted to turn over the Walker bullet to the FBI as they felt there was some possibility that Oswald might have shot at Walker. So in Dallas, by November 23, they've lined up Oswald as the Walker shooter. And uh, now getting back to the um, oddity of Ira Van Cleve, the detective, the Dallas Police Department detective, stating that he found the 30-06 bullet in the Walker home, steel jacketed. That's, that's kind of strange. But then it turns out, if you research Army records, there's a thing called Small Arms and Small Arms Ammunition, Record of Army Ordnance Research and Development. Uh, during World War II, under dire duress of World War II wartime copper shortages, the U.S. Army did in fact manufacture a steel jacketed 30-06 bullet during the war and shortly thereafter. The 30-06 was a standard rifle for the Army at the time, through World War II. These bullets were then sold into surplus when the U.S. adopted NATO-compatible armor in 1955. The steel-jacketed 30-06 were phased out of military use. They were never popular anyway, never liked by troops or even by civilians. The steel-jacketed bullets, they tend to rust, they're harder, they tend to wear out the inside barrel of, of weapons. Um, they tend to jam equipment because of rust and, and they, they're not malleable like uh, brass. They're, they're harder so they, they get jammed in equipment. The Army was glad to be rid of steel-jacketed bullets and never went back to them. This tells you how rare steel-jacketed bullets are. They're oddities. It's, I, I find it, it stretches credulity that Dallas Police Department Chief Curry would blunderbuss or conflate the terms steel-jacketed and copper-jacketed when asking the FBI to confirm the type of bullets used in the assassination of a sitting president. When Chief Kerry said he thought steel-jacketed bullets were used in assassinating the president, I, I, I just think that has to be what he meant. He did not mean copper-jacketed bullets. It's just stretching credulity that Chief Curry would conflate such terms in such an important situation. Well, we're hardly done. There are other problems with the Warren Commission's CE-573. There was a lieutenant on the Dallas Police Department who also marked the True Walker bullet, and he testified twice, once to the FBI and once to the Warren Commission. He testified, he had marked the True Walker bullet with the word day, his last name, and a cross. On about December 5, Lieutenant Day told the FBI he had placed upon the Walker slug the word day and a cross the slug itself, not an envelope or box or tag. Then, Lieutenant Day testified without equivocation before the Warren Commission in 1964. Bellin of the Warren Commission asks Day, I will ask you this, have you ever seen Commission Exhibit 573 before? If you know, Day, 
Yes, I have. Bellin, could you tell us what 573 day this slug was gotten from the home of General, former General Edwin Walker, 4011 Turtle Creek, April 10, 1963, by Detective D.G. Brown, one of the officers under my supervision. He brought this in and released it to me. Bellin, you are now reading from a report in your possession, is that correct? Day, yes, sir. Those are official records in my office. Bellin, was that prepared under your supervision? Day, yes, sir. In the regular course of your duties, did uh, Bellin, day, did you, uh, did you, were these papers prepared in the regular course of your duties at the Dallas Police Department? Day, yes, sir. The slug has my name, Day, slugged on it. After that last comment, Bellin quickly changed topic. It's not clear why Day was reading from official DPD records, or even if Day handled a bullet during the Washington uh, Warren Commission hearing. The problem is, in 1979, the National Law Guards and Records Service, on behalf of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, took CE-573, the phony Walker bullet, the copper-jacketed Walker bullet, to the FBI lab in Washington, where it was microscopically examined. The examiners found markings, Q188, NBJ, and a few other things. They did not find the word day or a cross, even under a microscope. So, and the extant photos that we have, they're hard to get a hold of. NARA has them. They do not reveal the word day either. So the word day has disappeared from what is called the Walker bullet today. <laughs> Among the very other strange things is when the Walker bullet was found on April 10. Here's what the, <laughs> I'm gonna, you got, your, your listeners are going to think I'm making this up. When the Dallas Police Department, Department patrolman was interviewed by the FBI, he said he found the steel-jacketed slug, this is back in April 10, resting atop one bundle of paper in a stack of bundles after another bundle had been removed from atop of it. That is, the Walker bullet missed Walker, then passed through an interior wall, then purportedly came to rest in between bundles of paper. These are bundles of paper, like reams of paper that you might buy uh, at uh, Office Depot, 500 sheets, and they're packaged themselves in paper. That's what the bundles look like. There's a photo in the Kennedy and King's article, and you can see the bundles. And here's per the FBI report dated June 4, 1964, in the adjoining room, that's the room into which the bullet had passed, Dallas Police Department officers Tucker and Norwell found numerous bundles of literature and papers stacked against the common wall. Upon removing some, they found a mushroom-shaped bullet lying on one of the stacks of literature near the hole in the wall, lying on one of the stacks. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, evidently the FBI didn't find that strange, and they didn't ask Norvo and Tucker, well, did you see a streak or something on the top of one bundle to indicate the bullet had just 
very unusually, but had just slipped in between bundles as it passed through the wall. They didn't ask him anything like that, I guess. They said they found the mushroom-shaped bullet steel-jacketed lying on one of the stacks of literature when they took off another stack of literature, bundled literature. So there's always been speculation, even back in, in 1963, April 10, that General Walker, who was an rather eccentric national figure, had staged the Walker shooting as a publicity stunt, with or without Oswald's participation. Uh, I can see why people might have some suspicion. Well, let's move right along to CE 399, which your loyal listeners will know is the magic bullet. That was the relatively pristine slug purported to have been recovered at Parkland Hospital on November 22, 1963, and which the Warren Commission says passed through the neck of President Kennedy and passed through Connolly's chest, shattered Connolly's wrist, and ended up in Connolly's thigh, and fell out and was found with only minimal damage. CE 393 is without dispute a Western ammo 6.5 millimeter copper jacketed bullet, a brother bullet to the Walker Commission's CE 573, same make, more tight. But the key fact is this, or a notable fact is this no one, no one ever, no one in any local or federal police agency ever called CE 393 a steel-jacketed bullet. Nowhere in the voluminous FBI files is there a single reference to CE-399 as a rifle bullet, ergo one is steel-jacketed. So police agencies, the FBI, nobody has any problems with immediately identifying CE-399, the magic bullet, as copper-jacketed. But CE-573, which is identical but even more obviously copper jacketed as it is in mangled, revealing sopper, solid copper jacketing, we are supposed to believe there were numerous police agency errors regarding that bullet, and they, by mistake, by problems of nomenclature, everyone described CE, everyone described the true Walker bullet as steel jacketed. Uh, one could be forgiving, forgiven. <laughs> I would forgive anyone for having reasonable doubt that CE-573 is a true Walker bullet, the slug extracted from the general's residence on April 10, 1963. In fact, I would be amazed that anybody would be reasonably certain or even, uh, uh, even undecided that CE-573, a copper-jacketed bullet, is actually the Walker bullet which was described as steel-jacketed by everybody that saw it on April 10. Oh, we could go through this, but uh, the, the curiosity, and it's pointed out by Tom Graham quite a bit, that if the Warren Commission wanted to know, is this copper-jacketed bullet we have the true Walker bullet, why didn't they ask detectives McElroy or Van Cleve? Why did they only ask through the FBI of this guy Norval. I mean, why didn't they go to Van Cleve and say, you handled and inscribed the Walker bullet? Okay, Van Cleve, you handled and the Walker bullet and you called it steel jacketed in official police reports on April 10. 
And then you said it was a 30-06 while talking to reporters. Why did you do that? The Walker Commission, the, the Warren Commission never asked Dan Cleave that. Neither did the FBI. So in sum, it is difficult to have confidence the true Walker bullet, the steel-jacketed bullet, is also the Warren Commission's Walker bullet, the torn asunder copper jacket, obviously copper-jacketed bullet. And there's all the, you know, every time you try to say, let's give the Warren Commission the benefit of the doubt, let's try to verify this, you can't find the correct marks on CE 573. The, same, the detective reports do not corroborate. There are no photographs of the true Walker bullet. There's no department, Dallas Police Department lab report on the true Walker bullet to say it was copper jacketed. Anyone driving to confirm the authenticity of the Warren Commission's Walker bullet needs roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. There's just no way to verify it. Uh, sadly, it is hardly a secret that the job of the Warren Commission was not to investigate the JFK assassination, but rather to prosecute Oswald as a lefty loner and loser without Confederates. And their narrative on the Walker shooting was that Oswald alone took a pot shot at the general, thus indicating Oswald's predisposition to assassinate public figures, and of course, JFK. It is this prosecute, prosecutorial zeal that can lead to excesses and shortcomings, and we see it in the case of this Walker bullet. So that's uh, about all I have talked out, but if you've got any questions, I'll be happy to answer them then. Well, it's strange to me that somebody at the uh, press conference there would bring up, you know, did Lee shoot Walker? Because nobody thought that until that reporter kind of brought it up. And then it was like, oh, he did that as well, you know? These other documents that show up kind of like that he was supposedly going to go after Nixon. He was going to go after other people, too. It's just all this stuff that's planted. It may be. We, and, you know, at this late date, uh, as I often say, all of this... All of this research should have been done by a bona fide, intrepid government body or even private sector body delegated authority by the government, you know, 55, 60 years ago. Somebody should have gone to that reporter way back then and said, look, dude, why did you ask if Oswald shot Walker one day after Oswald shot JFK? Did somebody leak this to you? Did you just make this? Uh, I would guess that this reporter, you know, he was probably a cop reporter, police beat, and somebody in the Dallas Police Department told them, well, we think Oswald shot at Walker also. Uh, you know, by then, the Dallas Police Department, uh, I'm not sure they knew by then, November 23, but very shortly afterwards, they had the strange photographs that Oswald had taken of the backyard of, of Walker's home. And that photograph uh, was in Oswald's possession. And, and also he had other photographs, six others showing approaches to the Walker home. So a reasonable deduction was that Oswald was involved in the Walker shooting. Doesn't mean he was, it's not, it's not dispositive. I wouldn't convict Oswald based on those photos, but it's highly suggestive. So even by November 23, people in Dallas were linking Oswald to the Walker shooting. And of course, 
Curry would would have made that connection also during that week after the Kennedy shooting. Well, it's very interesting. Like you say, it should have been done. This should have been done. The fact that it wasn't and the fact that they're holding back uh, documents for 60 years now, uh, they can't find photos and, and nobody, uh, you know, you know, where's the real evidence? It's just so many things that I know Robert Kennedy Jr. has been recently saying, look, the CIA killed my uncle, you know, and they covered it up and in every avenue. And then with the Warren Commission doing a farce of investigation compared to what concerned citizens like you and other people have done and looked into and written, right? It's really unbelievable. It is unbelievable that, well, we know now, I mean, it hasn't really been a secret. Anybody who does even minimal reading, let alone investigation or research into the Kennedy assassination, knows about the Nicholas Katzenbach memo. He, I believe he was associate uh, assistant attorney general at the time. On November 24, he said, we must convince the public that Oswald acted alone. And by, by then or shortly thereafter, LBJ, President Johnson and Hoover had concluded that Oswald acted alone. Now, whether they actually concluded that sincerely or felt that they uh, or were corrupt or they just felt we had to bury this thing because if Oswald was connected to the Russians or the Cubans, elements within the U.S. military would practically stage a coup and, and start World War III. Uh, that is, of course, what President Johnson scared uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren with, the prospects of World War III, unless they buried this event. So, rightly or wrongly, earnestly or otherwise, the Warren Commission was convened for the purpose of pinning the assassination on Oswald alone, and then every other bit of evidence was funneled through that you know, sifted through that uh, overriding uh, premise, including the Walker shooting. Um, I happen to think Oswald might have been involved in the Walker shooting, but if he was, he used a, a .30-06 rifle and he shot a steel jacketed bullet into the Walker home. And very likely he had Confederates. There were, as, as your listeners probably know, there were two vehicles Immediate, in the immediate aftermath of the Walker shooting, two vehicles suddenly left. Well, that's pretty suspicious, right? You might say, well, they were scared. They heard a gunshot. Nobody in those vehicles ever went to the Dallas Police Department or called on the phone, went to a phone booth and said, hey, you know, we just heard a gunshot and we're scared. It happened on Turtle Creek Avenue. They just disappeared. So... If Oswald was involved in the Walker shooting, and there are reasons to believe that, there are those photographs. Uh, there is the Walker letter, hotly disputed if it's authentic or not. The Walker letter, handwritten letter in Russian, appears to describe an event that will take place around April 10, which might result in the arrest of Oswald, the police arrest of Oswald. Um, so, I, but. Uh, if Oswald was involved, he, he was using a 30 6 rifle with a steel jacketed bullet. He probably had a ride from Confederates, and very likely he shot to miss. Everybody who was at that scene said it. they didn't know how anybody could miss using a rifle from 30 yards. Uh, they somehow missed Walker. So 
that's my take on the situation. I can't say I know what happened that night, but I'm, I'm pretty sure. I would say I know beyond reasonable doubt Oswald did not use April 10, 1963. He did not use a Mannlicher Cartino rifle, and he did not shoot a copper jacketed bullet into the home of General Walker. Right. So in that case, some could make this, the, uh, you know, the counterclaim that he wasn't even there. And some other group with the motivation to lay a trail, you know, set up a patsy, whoever it was. Because in setting up people, we know that other there was two or three people, you know, from the Chicago plot that maybe were in line. And maybe there was someone else in Dallas other than just Lee that was maybe going to be uh, a potential patsy. There has been speculation, and I'm engaging in speculation now, that uh, Oswald was, a well, more than speculation, Oswald was a, a federal government asset. Uh, very serious research, you know, John Newman, many others have done very serious research. Certainly looks like Oswald was a CIA asset. He may have worked for the customs office for a while. There's indications of that. Maybe someone. Well, they were talking about his informant number, right? Yeah, he has an informant, uh, an asset or an informant, not an on payroll uh, agent or officer of the CIA. Uh, that someone may have sent him to take photographs of the Walker home, seeking, uh, I hate to say this, but seeking compromising information. Uh, we all know Walker had a private life, and you could take some photos, get some license plates, you might have some dirt on Walker, and you could keep Walker, you know, controlled. Uh, certainly, um, FBI Hoover, FBI Director Hoover wanted dirt on everybody. So Oswald was detailed to take some photos of Walker's home and try to get some dirt on him, and he did that. So then he had these photos in his possession. The very, the only strange photograph of Walker's house from the rear, there's a car parked in there with the license plate number cut out. Why was that license plate cut out? That's been the question everybody has asked ever since. Right, well, I, or is that planted, right? Is that it there? Planted? And, uh, you know, they knew that would lead to something uncomfortable, so they're leaving that out, but they just want to leave this paper. Well, whatever, that's, that's regardless, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there, there was, um, yeah, so it, it certainly looks like uh, the Walker shooting was fitted through the framework of the Warren Commission, and they had to, you know, bend every premise to get him to be the lone, the lone suspect in the Walker shooting. Yeah. Well, another good article. Um Thanks so much for working on it, Ben, and also have to thank Tom Graham. All right. Um, well, we'll encourage people to go to Kennedy's and King and and uh, read your in-depth article there and maybe some of the photos that uh, people may be interested in. But um, before we wrap up, is there anything you else you wanted to add on any anything else even? I'm about talked out. I can't. I've uh, shot my wad on this one. Okay. Uh, I I don't even have any. Yeah. Um, I, I'll let it ride. 
I'll let her ride. I, mean, I always make an offer just in case somebody said, oh, yes, right, I'm speaking here or I have a new book or something. But for now, then thank you so much, Ben, uh, for taking the time to talk to uh, people at Black Off Radio and let them listen to this. And then, like I say, your article is up there at Kennedy's and King, and we'll make the proper links. Again, thanks for having me on, Len, to everybody's favorite radio show, Black Op Radio. Thank and you also, so much. Yeah, thank uh, you so much. All right, keep in touch and email me if you have anything else. Just let me know. I'll be glad to help uh, promote, you know, uh, people are doing good work. Thanks, thanks again. You're very welcome. Bye, okay, good night.